Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I am your host, Natalie Pearson. In mid-2021, Singapore made public something that had been in the works for some time, an announcement regarding the discovery of not one but two shipwrecks in Singaporean waters, the first Singaporean shipwrecks. Chinese trade ceramics found in these cargoes date the wrecks to the 14th and 18th centuries, pivotal moments in the history of the globe-spanning China trade. The most intriguing aspect of this salvage operation, however, is the discovery in the remains of the older vessel of the most substantial cargo of Yuan Dynasty blue and white porcelain yet found in Southeast Asian waters. To tell us more about these ceramics, I'm joined by Dr Alex Birchmore, an art historian specialising in the study of Chinese and Southeast Asian art, past and present, with a particular focus on ceramics, trade and exchange, and the interweaving of the personal and material. Alex received his PhD from the Australian National University in 2019 and joined the University of Sydney's Museum and Heritage Studies Department in 2021. His first book, New Export China, Translations Across Time and Place in Contemporary Chinese Porcelain Art, will be published by the University of California Press in 2023. Alex, thank you for joining us today on SEAC Stories. My pleasure. Looking forward to talking more about ceramics and trade. Excellent. Well, I too am looking forward to talking about shipwrecks and ceramics and trade. I'm always excited to talk about shipwreck discoveries. Can you tell us what you know about these two in Singapore? From what I've gathered from the few uh, media articles that have been released so far, there were, so as you mentioned, there were two, and there's one that's been dated tentatively at first to the 14th century, and and one which has been more confidently dated to the 18th century, and actually has been identified as a named ship, the Shah Muncha, which was um, trading, I think, as part of the British East India Company between Southeast Asia and India and, and Europe. But the first ship or I guess the earliest ship, is the one that interests me. And the dating of that is based on a comparison of Celadon-glazed ceramics, which were found in the wreck, with similar ceramics which were unearthed around the same time, well, in 2016, by an archaeological excavation at Empress Place. And those ceramics have been dated to the the 14th century, to the what's called the Temasek era. And then based on that comparison, they've dated the wreck to the same era. But I mean, I guess it awaits further further exploration and confirmation in terms of maybe if there's some remnants of the ship itself that would help, or if there's some other aspects of the cargo. It, it all seems quite in the early stages at the moment. But yeah, from what I understand, that's the contents of the two ships and the, and the dating. But yeah, what, what interests me most is the quantity of blue and white ware, which has been found on this 14th century ship and identified as Yuan Dynasty blue and white, because it's the largest quantity ever found in Southeast Asian waters, especially the fact that it's so early is is what's most interesting, because usually, as I spoke about in my talk last year, usually with blue and white in Southeast Asia, there's this uh, conception that it's very rudimentary or very low end or very uh, cheap kind of cast offs. It's been thought of as as a region that was mostly sold cast-offs from more desirable wares. But these blue and white wares are actually very high quality and very um, desirable. And the fact that they've been found off the coast of Singapore and dated to this time indicates that there was a much larger market 
these words than has previously been thought. And that's what I, I really am looking forward to finding out more about as, as more information comes out. So how can we determine that these blue and white ceramics that were found off the coast of Singapore are not the sort of pedestrian style ceramics that you're talking about and that they are indeed these higher quality, more in-demand ceramics? What sort of techniques can we use to determine that? It essentially rests on connoisseurship, really, and, and the comparison of different examples in existing collections elsewhere and um, what has been perceived to be high quality. So usually higher quality is considered to be more intricate designs, like a finer body of the clay, a greater clarity of the cobalt blue decoration. So the mineral that's used to create the blue color would have a much crisper definition and it would be much richer and that would indicate that more had been used, that more skill had gone into it. There's two main collections with which it would be compared to identify the quality, basically, which both date to around the same time. So the Top Kapi Sarai collection and the Ardeville Shrine collection. And basically, I mean, scholars have already made these comparisons. So Michael Flecker, for example, who led the archaeological excavation team of the Rex, is the one to whom all these quotes are attributed about these being such high quality wares, much, much higher quality than previously found ones. And it is based upon comparison to those existing collections in the Middle East, which are the only remaining intact collections that can be securely dated to that time, whereas others elsewhere have been dispersed. But it is essentially based on connoisseurship, uh, aspects of the wares themselves that show them to have been a more high-end type of production, and then just comparison to dated examples. Yeah, so there's the mode of production, the materials used, the glazes, for example. But what about the patterns or the decorations on the ceramics themselves? Can they tell us something as well? They could, they could. I'm sure as a lot of listeners know, the China trade throughout history, more towards the later stages, was very, well, always suited towards the tastes of the markets to which the wares were being sent. So the manufacturers in China would alter the designs they used and sometimes the shape of the vessels that were sent to suit the tastes of the markets that they were serving. And some of the most famous examples are things like the pilgrim flasks, which went over to the Middle East, which were based on pilgrim flasks, but they were an adaptation of that shape into a different form. And then you've got things like mustard pots, which went to Europe, and then kendies, which went to Southeast Asia, which is a sort of water dripper, but it's very specific to Southeast Asian markets. So the shape is probably the most visible, but then also the patterns you get these fantastic to and fro exchanges as things kind of, you know, you have at one end what the producers think the market wants and then sometimes the, the consumers have the opportunity to send back demands and then they get kind of adapted along the way in these amazing chain letters of designs across regions. But what these patterns could show, again, by comparison with other examples, usually the general type of wear or especially general type of blue and white wear that we've seen in Southeast Asia generally has quite simple patterns, things like plantain leaves or banana leaves and other things like that. Birds are a popular one, especially in Vietnam. But what these ones would reveal, I mean, I haven't had a chance to study them, but if we can see similarities between other wares that have been sent elsewhere, a lot can be inferred from that. I mean, it could either mean that the kind of shared taste was experienced between courts in very different areas of the world, or it could mean that wares which were also sent to one place were also desired in Temasek or other parts of Southeast Asia. Do we know where the vessel was heading with this blue and white cargo? Do we have any idea of the intended market for these objects? 
From what I've gathered, there isn't any specific information yet about the final destination of the vessel. But yeah, based on that comparison with the Empress Place ceramics, there's an understanding that some of the shipment might have been intended for whatever state existed on what is now Singapore in the 14th century. And at that time, ships would have made multiple stops along the way in between China and whatever their final destination was with different shipments. And they might have trans shipments, so they might drop one thing off and pick something else up and exchange a crew and exchange for water and supplies and that sort of thing. So part of the shipment, based on that comparison, could have been intended for uh, Temasek, where Singapore is. But then the rest of it might might even have been going over to Persia or to uh, India or probably would have been Persia or India. It wouldn't have been Europe at that point. It would definitely have been, if it wasn't Southeast Asia, it would have been Persia or India. So at the time we're recording this podcast, the archaeological reports for the two wrecks haven't yet been released. So we don't have any detail really other than these sort of tantalising tidbits that have been released in the media about the discovery of the wrecks and some glimpses of as to the cargo that they were carrying. So I'd like to go back to this issue you raised right at the beginning, which is about the quality of the ceramics. And, you know, you were sort of talking about the assumptions that the quality of these ceramics disrupts. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so for, for many years now, well, for decades now, I suppose, there's two main assumptions that the shipment might possibly disrupt if the comparisons prove to hold. And one of those is the assumption of Southeast Asia as a market only for low-end ceramics. And that's primarily based on the evidence that exists for ceramics within Southeast Asia, most of which has been found in indigenous communities in Indonesia and the Philippines. So a lot of the scholarship on Chinese ceramic trade in Southeast Asia is based on those surviving examples in those communities. What's been found there is mostly what's thought of as lower end ceramics. So they're a bit more rudimentarily painted. The glaze is perhaps a bit chunkier. It's not quite as refined. The ceramic body itself is quite thick. They're often quite small. So things like cups or storage jars rather than really elaborate uh, shapes and forms and designs. And, And they've mostly been found in situations of burial with high ranking people or in ritual contexts. So the assumption that has built up around that is that these ceramics were perceived in Southeast Asia in general as some sort of quasi-magical material that had been mysteriously shipped across from a distant place and that it was perceived to be possessing great powers and that it would be um, a sort of conduit between different realms, so both between human and non-human realms and between you know, the foreign and the local And based on that evidence and based on those assumptions, there really hasn't been much thought given to the fact that multiple very sophisticated and very refined courts existed across Southeast Asia at that time. And we can fairly assume that there would have been a market there for Chinese ceramics of a much higher quality than those which were traded with indigenous people further into the archipelagos. So that's one assumption that perhaps these ceramics might disrupt. And then the other assumption is specific to blue and white ceramics themselves. And this has already been disrupted several times by other shipwrecks. So the Belitung shipwreck, for example, had some examples of blue and white wares, which were the earliest yet discovered outside of China, and perhaps also the earliest within China itself, in terms of what we think of as blue and white. But there is this prevailing narrative that blue and white ware only appeared in the in the mid-14th century or the, or the earliest, the early 14th century, and that it was precipitated by this global interaction between Muslim merchants 
and Chinese ceramicists. And it was this kind of meeting of Islamic and Chinese aesthetics and it arose and then it was shipped out to the world and immediately gained universal acclaim. But things like this shipment disrupt that a little because they show that that at a stage when most scholars who, who adhere to that narrative would expect to see a more rudimentary form of ceramic again, you actually have these very highly refined pieces which speak to an existing aesthetic and an existing ability to produce that predates what we would usually think of as the moment when that kind of ceramic would appear. And then they're also in, in the wrong place to a certain extent based on that narrative because you would expect to find them in Persia or India. Or, I mean, admittedly, if the ship was going to those places, they would perhaps support that narrative, but they still upend the timing of it. And they, they suggest perhaps other markets and other points of influence beyond the Middle Eastern Muslim world and the Chinese world. Yeah, so I think uh, Michael Flecker, who was the supervising maritime archaeologist for both of these wrecks, has said that there is reason, or he believes there's reason, to suspect that the vessel was coming to Singapore, coming to visit the place where Singapore is located today. How does that disrupt our understanding of Southeast Asia's role in these international trade networks? So Southeast Asia is usually perceived as a kind of passage between the East and the West, just a stopover on the way from the producers to the main consumers. So if if this is evidence for quite a significant stopping over at the port and an unloading of a substantial quantity of very luxurious merchandise rather than simply exchanging a crew and getting suppliers, then it would imply that there were markets within that region that were actively engaged in the trade and that were theoretically supporting the trade in a way beyond merely serving as intermediaries or serving as a passage between two regions. And then it also speaks to those broader issues that scholarship of Southeast Asia has faced for so long in terms of being seen as a passage or a transitional point or between these powerful neighbours, so China on one hand and India on the other, and then the Middle East as well. And then it becomes more of a an active agent within that process and a, a participating member of the conversation, I suppose. So I think one of the first shipwrecks to be found in Southeast Asian waters carrying blue and white was the Gelder Malson, which was discovered and salvaged in 1985. Those objects, the blue and white ceramics found on that vessel, were sold at auction in Europe for a lot of money. Even by today's standards, it was an extraordinary amount of money that the objects were sold for. Do we know what's going to happen to the ceramics that have just been discovered of Singapore? Are they going to be sold or is there are there plans for them to be put in museums? And if so, where? I mean, my hope would be that they'd go to a museum and they'd remain intact, just considering the involvement of the ISEAS Yusuf Ishak Institute and the involvement of Michael Flecker as well, as well as the Singaporean government. My hope would be that they would probably go to, you know, the Asian Civilizations Museum or somewhere like that based on the treatment of the Bellatung wreck, the way in which that's remained relatively intact. To my mind, it would be terrible if they if they were put on the private market and sold off in piecemeal fashion and then kind of dispersed like the Gildemelson ceramics without any hope of retracing their provenance in many cases and rebuilding a, a picture of, of what that shipment contained. So my hope would be that they would go to the Asian Civilizations Museum. We'll have to watch this space for a public announcement on where the objects are going. One of the approaches that you use, Alex, when it comes to using evidence from salvaged shipwreck cargoes is to argue for the value of inference, conjecture and informed speculation to reimagine the past. 
as well as the extent to which materials from elsewhere can be used to actively create localised forms of self and place. Can you unpack this a little bit for us? The idea of speculation and conjecture is something that I'm sort of trying out lately, because mostly I focus, or in, in the past few years, I've been focusing on the contemporary and the modern eras that are much easier, or not easier, but more straightforward to access. There's more evidence available for us to use. But I'm looking further into the past now and, and towards eras where we have less physical evidence that we can draw on, and perhaps records are more scant, or they might be very tied to certain perspectives which overlook certain things and emphasize other things. And I'm finding from what I've read and from what I've looked at that really there's no alternative in certain cases and certain places to adopt an approach that involves a certain amount of conjecture and speculation, which obviously are dirty words for a lot of historians. But I mean, so much of history, especially the history of the distant past, is based on informed guesses, based on the evidence that's available and based on the the context of the time and what you can kind of piece together from these fragmentary narratives. So I think my thought lately, and with this research that I'd like to undertake as well, into this idea of the market for Chinese ceramics in Southeast Asia, is that there is a place for conjecture and speculation. And these strategies have been used for a long time in things like object biography and object narrative approaches to art history and approaches to material culture where you try and use, I guess, your powers of projection and imagination sometimes to fill in the gaps or to to give colour and flesh out narratives which might be quite skeletal or, or fragmented. And obviously sometimes there's leaps of faith involved, but as long as as I think as long as there's some reference point or some material evidence that you can use, then there is a place for that kind of scholarship. You're interested in looking at the ceramic trade from China in Southeast Asia. Can you also tell us a little bit about your plans to investigate or consider colonial Australia as a primary market for these wares? Yeah, that's another research project that I'd love to undertake in the next few years. And it comes back to the way in which material objects play a role in the formation of cultural and personal identities. That's where this, I guess, intersects with my previous research. So when I looked at contemporary Chinese artists using porcelain, I was very much interested in how they use that material to express and also construct a sense of self. And then I've applied it also in another context to English and Dutch uses of porcelain in mass display and how that was used to construct a sense of identity or construct a sense of difference or differentiation between self and other. And more recently, I've come to think, you know, I've come across more and more mention in texts and also as I just go around museums in Australia, you see so much Chinese porcelain and so much, especially Chinese blue and white. And I've looked into the area a bit and there doesn't seem to be massive amounts of research done on the role that Australia would have played in the China trade. There's so much in our collections and in our history, and there's such a Chinese presence in Australia, which has been so repeatedly kind of obscured or overlooked by certain elements of the political and um, academic world, that again, it's reasonable to infer that there must have been significant quantities of Chinese ceramics. And what interests me about that is how they played into early narratives of nationhood and early kind of ways of distinguishing a sense of Australian identity or how they might even have played into ideas of racial identity. So how the the whiteness of the porcelain may have served to reinforce ideas of whiteness among the population and how that played into those horrible 
visceral racial politics of colonial Australia in the first half of the 20th century. So you've got this strange paradox of European people living in Australia using perhaps Chinese wares to foster a sense of closeness to Europe, which I just find quite fascinating and I want to explore that in more depth. Yeah, that's super interesting, especially because the materials required to produce those ceramics, those porcelains of pure white, were so specific to certain parts of China and the the clay that you could access in northern China, for example, to produce those white porcelainous wares. All of these things are absolutely fascinating. And I know that we've um, strayed a little bit from Southeast Asia because we've been talking about, but it's just a way of indicating that these networks span the entire world and there's a lot more research to be done. And with every new shipwreck discovery, we've got the opportunity to gain more of an insight into the past and to use, you know, this approach using inference and conjecture, but also to use archaeological materials themselves to interrogate our understandings of the past and how they might change every time we have one of these incredible shipwreck discoveries. I think those final comments of yours really do summarise it really well. And that idea of, I mean, shipwrecks are such a wonderful source about information on the past. The comparison gets trawled out a lot, but they're such a time capsule or, or a micro history of a certain moment in trade. And every time one surfaces, as you know, it does frequently transforms our understanding of that trade and transforms our understanding of regional connections and, and regional trade routes and things like that. So I do, I very much do look forward to hearing more about this shipwreck and seeing what's turned up next. Absolutely. I'm sure everyone who's interested in shipwrecks in a Southeast Asian context will be keeping their eyes peeled for the archaeological report, as we will be keeping our eyes peeled for your ongoing research on this project. Alex, thank you so much for sharing it with us today at SEAC Stories. Thanks, Natalie. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.